Thank you very much, Tom. And I want to acknowledge uh, Tom Cronin's inspiration in conceiving of this event and coming to my office several months ago and saying, wouldn't it be terrific if we could get the last three sitting governors of Colorado together on a platform? Because I don't think that's happened before, and it would be a unique opportunity. And so here we are, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to uh, Colorado College. As Tom has said, I had the pleasure of serving now as president of Colorado College for eight years. I'm finishing my two terms. I don't know what I'm going to do <laughs> at this point. Uh, before I say a word about our three governors, I want to acknowledge uh, two of the spouses who are here, B. Romer and Dottie Lamb. Would you stand up so we can say welcome to the two of you? Thank you. So a, w a word about, this is, this is a, a kind of a down-home conversation. It's meant to be informal uh, and up close and personal. We hope to keep it that way. Uh, it will be questions and conversation back and forth among the governors. Uh, you will have a chance to ask questions, uh, and we will, uh, I think, learn a lot this evening that uh, may or may not be in the history books. It may not have been recorded before. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, it will be illuminating for you and I think fun for uh, these three uh, individuals who have distinguished themselves as governors of Colorado and, and in their public service careers. Uh, Dick Lamb served three terms as the 38th governor of Colorado from 1975 to 1987. He was much too young to be elected governor when he first was elected, I think 39 years old. Uh, currently, he's co-director of the Institute for Public Policy Studies at the University of Denver. He received an honorary degree, Doctor of Laws Honoris Causa from CC in 1988, so we can kind of claim him. And he spoke at CC State of the Rockies uh, Conference just a few years ago, in 2004. Dick, we're delighted to have you back here this evening. Uh, Roy Romer, who had been his chief of staff at one point, uh, served as the 39th governor of, of Colorado from 1987 to 1999. Being a glutton for punishment, he then went on to become uh, the superintendent of schools in Los Angeles. And I still have no idea why he uh, took that on. He is the parent of a 1979 Colorado College graduate, Mary, and he received an honorary degree as well. Bill Owens served as the 40th governor of Colorado from 1999 to 2007. Currently, he is a principal in JF Companies, a Denver-based land and water development firm with interests in Colorado, Arizona, and Texas. He also has Colorado College connections, I think most notably, because he's a good friend of our trustee, Bob and Janet Manning, both CC alums, who I believe are here with us this evening. So would you please join me in welcoming these three very special guests. Now, I, I, I indicated that uh, one of the reasons why Tom and I were excited about this notion was, to our knowledge, this hadn't occurred before. And lo and behold, when we got together at the house a little earlier, it was evident this hadn't occurred before. That uh, they may have attended uh, an inaugural, and I think probably both uh, Roy and Dick were at, at uh, Bill Owens' inaugural, but the opportunity to talk about what it's like to be governor of Colorado, what those experiences were, and how we think about uh, the challenges of governance today 
uh, this is our first opportunity. So I'd like to begin by asking uh, each of you to comment for us about, as you reflect on your eight or 12 years of service to the state of Colorado, what would you say is, from your standpoint, the most significant or satisfying achievement that you, uh, accomplishment that you had in your time in office? Bill, I'm gonna start with you and we'll just go across the. You know, I, I, I was thinking about it, and, and while a lot of people or some people think of some of the things we did in transportation, Cosmics and T-Rex, and what it really was was education reform. It was following in the footsteps of Roy Romer in terms of CSAP, measuring accountability standards, um, trying to, in fact, improve the most important aspect of what we as government do, and that is public education. And it's one of the most difficult challenges that I, I bet any of the three of us or even the four of us face because the, the challenge is so sometimes intractable. But strong believer that you have to measure, you have to have, have standards, you have to have accountability, you have to ask the questions that sometimes our friends in, in public education don't want asked, and that is, you know, what works and what doesn't work, and if it's not working, how do we fix it? And so the most important thing I did was charter schools, um, schools of choice, um, really trying to bring oxygen and energy and innovation um, to our public schools. Dick, how would you look back on your 12 years and pick something out? Um, I think very definitely the, the most important thing is that the team that you put together, this is not a one-man band. And I think it's really important to run a, you know, as you said, I was 39 years old. I probably shouldn't have voted for myself. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that the most important task of generically, not taking away from anything that these people might, might say, which are all true accomplishments, but I think that, you know, you got to put together the team because I couldn't begin to have done it by myself. Can I just ask a footnote to that? When you say a team, how, how big is that team? How many well, people? Yeah, so unfortunately, we, I, John Love and Bill Owens repeated this, and you did earlier, Tom Cronin did. The, the fact is that the, the governor of Colorado has the responsibility, but not the authority to run the state of Colorado. So I had 53,000 employees at one time, and I could hire and fire 14 of them outside of my own office. That's pretty... Do the, do the, you know, that's, it's, that's it's pretty speaks impressive. for itself. Yeah. Roy, accomplishments. Well, I thought about this question also, and uh, we, we, we could pick out education, job creation, a lot of things, but I think the most important thing I did, and it was a continuation of what we all did, was to make government accessible to people, believable to people, and have integrity. I just think that, and this is the history of Colorado governors, uh, and I want to give that illustration of that. Uh, uh, one day I was coming back from a Bronco game in London, and at the airport my ch team, my chief of staff and assistant met me, and it was 3 o'clock. At 2 o'clock that afternoon, a state highway employee had rolled a rock off of Berthoud Pass, and it had hit a bus two, three miles down, the hill killed 11 or 14 people, I forget which. And the bus also had 11 to 12 who were very severely injured. All of them were outside the United States. They were visitors. 
And I met with my staff immediately because we had people scattered all over town in hospitals and we had to make some decisions very quickly. And uh, within an hour, we established a per diem payment to each of those families, $100 a day, to, to keep them up. And uh, I had lawyers all over me saying, what's the authority for what you're doing? And we were saying, look, if this had been our yard and we had had that roll down and hurt our neighbor, we would have said it's our job to fix it. And we then invited all these families from out the world, Australia, I sent the Canadian Mounties after one, to come and two Australian parents were killed and five of their adult children lived in the mansion with me for a week. But we adopted this group uh, because we had caused it. And I only tell that little story because I think government needs to be believable, needs to be accessible, and to have integrity. And I just was a part of the tradition of Colorado governors. And I think when I try to reflect what was the most important thing, I think continuing that belief in government was a very important so act. So the answer, the answer to the lawyers when they came to you and said, by what authority are you doing this? You said moral authority, and that's the way we've got to do it, right? Yeah. yeah. Occasionally, and I don't know whether this is true for any of the others of you, you found yourself feeling compelled to do something and advice was, we're not sure this is within your bailiwick. And you said, it is something I have to do by virtue of my being in this office, right? I mean, it, it happens that way. I mean, let me ask a question. Each of you served in the legislature for an extended period of time. I mean, eight, 12 years. You were not, uh, you didn't enter the governor's office without a real understanding of state government and so on. Um, and still, you, there's no handbook for being a governor, right? So I'm curious as to the biggest surprise that you encountered um, probably early in your administration. I think I know what you're going to say, Bill, but I'm going to start, Dick, with you. Is there something that strikes yeah. you as a surprise you just the, hadn't the thought about? The press. The press. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't recognize my genius. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I went from a, a white knight legislator. I mean, remember, I got elected right at, and probably because of Watergate. And so all of a sudden, the press turned, you know, started to judging me, you know, as I was, I, a, f a fumbling governor, new governor. And I, I tell you, I was shocked to go from the, the you know, from the, a popular legislator to an unpopular governor. That's, I'm sorry you, you asked. Uh, Roy, was there, was there a surprise for you that you hadn't, hadn't counted on or hadn't um, anticipated? It, it, it is uh, how stiff a bureaucracy is and how difficult it is to really move it. Uh, I, I mean, I had come from the private sector mostly, and uh, they're good people people who serve government in a bureaucratic form. But we have accumulated some traditions and some habits and some patterns that make uh, us much less proficient than we ought to be. And I was surprised that, uh, that we were so resistant to change 
and the motivations for public service uh, get hampered by a whole lot of excessive rules <laughs> uh, that uh, prevent us from being as effective as we ought to be. I was surprised when I got into that. And, and Bill, I'm going to point you in the direction you, we had a little bit of conversation earlier. I mean, what, your first 100 days, you had a surprise that no governor could anticipate. Yeah, we, we, were, we met earlier and, and had dinner, and, and this came up because I was complimenting my two predecessors. But 100 days into my first term, we had Columbine. And I hardly knew my way around the state offices yet, and the state patrol calls, and before word had gotten out, but we had really early notice that things were happening there because of the communications that we all benefited from. And, and as I heard what was really happening in, in some of the early word in terms of that it was a much worse tragedy than, frankly, anybody knew outside of, of the law enforcement community, um, I was a brand new governor, and I, I, I didn't know what to do. I mean, I knew, so I made two phone calls. I called Governor Romer. Who had, been, who had been my immediate predecessor. After all, he had been governor until 101 days earlier. And uh, reached him in Washington, D.C., and he immediately, because this was such a tragedy, he, he put us on the phone with President Clinton. And we talked and, and discussed a little bit about some of the things we should do. My second call after I, and I invited Governor Romer out to Colorado. He was, he was in D.C. on business. But I, we were going to have a memorial service. We already knew, and I asked him to come out right away, and so the two of us could go as a symbol of continuity and bipartisanship during a tough time. But my second call was to Dick Lamb, and I, I told him what had happened and asked him if he had any advice. And he said, you know, Bill, um, you know, remember, you're the father of Colorado now. And what he meant was that I was the face of what was going on. And it was great advice because I, I hadn't yet, I needed somebody to say, you know, Bill, you know, now's your time. And so for the next weeks during those funerals and during the, the as we tried to unite the state behind some, some, some initiatives that we put on the ballot, it was, it was Dick and Roy's advice that really helped a brand new governor um, during a tough time. And so, you know, we, we are good friends. And we're also joined by something, and that is we've all been there. And uh, it's why we, don't, we didn't critique each other. Um, I, and I don't critique Governor Ritter. It's not my job. It's his watch. He's elected. It's his responsibility. And, and, you know, I, I appreciate your sharing that with us because I think quite often folks who aren't part of this, who haven't had this experience, <clears throat> don't realize the degree to which regardless of party, regardless of differences over particular issues, in moments of real serious crisis, and you're in a position of leadership in the state, you turn to others who have been there and there exactly. is a tremendous amount of mutual support mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in terms of how to move forward. And I'm, one of the questions I have is, do you sense that this quality may be diminishing in the current sort of political environment, or do you have a concern about that? Let, me, let me tee off on that one. I, I really appreciate being back, because uh, you sense uh, this is a very important relationship that we're, I think, displaying, and that is, hey, I opposed him, uh, Bill Owens, when he ran for governor. You know, I didn't agree with some of his policies, many of them, but yet we never lost the ability to make Colorado a better place together. I'm 
observe the politics of this nation daily. And I confess, many mornings I get up and say, you know, I don't fit in that system now. I don't fit in that extreme uh, argumentation on both sides. Uh, that, that, that failure to listen to your opponent and to take them seriously. I'm worried, quite frankly. And the healthcare debate, which we've just finished, and I'm not trying to divert us to that. But uh, we're not listening to each other sincerely, accurately, and reasonably from our different points of view. And I want to add also the press, the media, because we're now digital, we're on, we're on every instantaneous news. There's no screen for this. It used to be the major news outlets had some responsibility to screen and have some balance. But now there's not, that's not there. And uh, I'll just be very specific. I, I work five days a week in Washington. I come back to Colorado on weekends, and I try to get on a radio station in which I think is intelligent and balanced. And I've got to look a long time before I find one. So I, I don't know whether either of you want to piggyback on that comment. I mean, uh, Ray has said it so well. I just want to talk about a New Yorker cartoon that I saw one time, this guy standing on a platform. And he said, I will not say a bad word about my opponent or any of his commie friends. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm curious, you know, I want to, I want to go back to, uh, uh, I was with a, a friend of mine who's a guru on leadership, Warren Bennison. We were talking about the importance of leadership. And he said, as he's thought about it now over about 50 years, he's more and more convinced that the real quality that makes an effective leader is their understanding of context. The context in which you're trying to communicate with people or motivate people or unify people or whatever. I'm, I'm, I would be interested in your thoughts just as you reflect on yourself as to what, what you believe, what factors made you particularly effective as a leader in Colorado when you took the stage? What, what were the qualities that you felt supported well, you or sustained you or moved in, you in this direction? In my case, it was overwhelming political genius. <laughs> mainly, mainly. Modesty. 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 Well. <laughs> but maybe a little bit about the fact that I went in a Watergate year. But remember, that's not very much of it. It's mainly, mainly political genius. <laughs> But in, in all seriousness, you know, I really felt that Colorado was just a wonderful state to represent because, you know, it had a maturity level. I mean, that, that so many people, I, I mean, you, you, could, you, you could just honestly say things and honestly make mistakes, but they would understand your sincerity. That would be my experience. You, but I want to push you a little bit, and then I want the others to, to, to chime in. But... You also took a stand as a legislator on a very controversial issue and provided leadership as a sort of statewide voice. You were young. I mean, do, are those, are those aspects of what you think contributed to your... It, it, you know, the, the, the very important cr crossroads in my life is when I went and joined Toastmasters because I was a new lawyer in town and I really recognized that I couldn't articulate things as well as I wanted to, say things succinctly and, and sincerely 
and I went to enjoy Toastmasters, and that was the single biggest thing I think that I had going for me is that I could articulate things. That's very important. Roy? Well, the context of how you govern, each of us governed in different periods, different challenges. Um, I followed a, a, a great governor, but had an environmental record which some in this state viewed as radical for us. You know, anybody who wants to ban the Olympics, you know, et cetera. <laughs> and and, and I, I'm just saying, I'm trying to speak really honest, speak the truth here. And to govern, I, my memory is I had a Republican legislature almost every, one, every year of my 12 years. So if I'm going to get anything done, I got to stay true to my values, but I got to have the aura of I can be reached in the middle. And, and I, therefore, took the role of, I'm from Holly, Colorado. And you remember I wore a leather jacket almost all of my 12 years. I was a pilot, and I still had those old mountain shoes that I still wear. And uh, it was very important not to be false, but to be true to people that uh, I can hear you, I can listen to you. And uh, that's a context and a style uh, that was important. Uh, but I gotta tell you, the Achilles heel of most politicians and people of power is arrogance. Arrogance is what does us in. I just watched in history, uh, we lose the ability to see that that person in front of us may have more intelligence than we have, may have a better idea than we have, and may have a better human spirit than we have. And if you can stay open to the possibility that every encounter you have you may gain from that encounter a learning you need. Uh, it helps govern, and, and I just want to say that's the context in which I try to keep in my mind. Now, hey, I failed a whole lot of times, so I want to tell you, but that was what I tried. Bill? You know, it, I, was, I was proud to have, I was in the legislature for all 12 years that Governor Romer was governor, and I was in the legislature for the final four years that, that Dick Lamb was governor. Both signed important pieces of legislation that I sponsored. And I guess my, my, the, what I tried to bring into my years as governor was the ability to work with both sides of the aisle. I was pragmatic on tactics. I'd work with anybody that, that, that wanted to work with me. I was not, I was not pragmatic on principle. I would, I would stand my ground. But politics doesn't have to be, and let me rephrase, policy doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. There's enough for both sides to work together, and that's actually what I'm fearing we're not having today. Um, the two parties, and, and I can blame both parties, and I remember when President Bush was president, and boy, he didn't get much cooperation from, from the other party any more than President Obama is getting much cooperation today from the Republicans. But you just gotta learn to work together, and that's why I am concerned about where we're headed. There isn't the, that ability to, to disagree without being disagreeable. And I guess my final piece of advice to anybody that ever wants to go into policy, and I don't like the term politics, because most, we're in it for policy reasons. We weren't in it for political reasons. My final piece of advice is, 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 is learn to enjoy it. I mean, this isn't, the burden of the world is not on you. I loved being governor. I loved walking away on that final day and not being governor just as much. <laughs> But it's, you know, this is a great democracy, and, and it's a great republic. And uh, 
I just wish we could work together like the three of us have done in a number of different uh, venues over the, over the years. I mean, you've, two of you have now mentioned the, the legislature again in your experience, either serving in it or working with the legislature. How, how do you, as you watch the politics of Colorado evolve over time, I'm, I'm interested in your sense of the balance of power between the legislature and the governor and how you would say, what, is there a trend there that uh, is evident, number one, and is that trend positive, is that trend worrisome? Um, I'm particularly interested in the, in the budget process because one of the real powers of the governor of Ohio is that I introduced the budget, I controlled a lot of the budget, I made the legislature had to vote for it, but I, from day one, I could negotiate around what would get vetoed by me within the budget and what wouldn't. And I thought that was part of uh, the strength of the governor's office in Ohio. And it's certainly the process is different here with the growing powers of the Joint Budget Committee. So I'm curious as to this, your sense of the balance between the legislative branch and, and, and the executive branch and how you see that playing out. Any thoughts? You're nodding your head, Bill. I <laughs> well, you're, 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 um, I know what Dick's going to say, and what he's going to say is, and I'm going to agree with it, we teach, <laughs> we teach together at the University of Denver. So you're taking and, his and, lecture and, notes and now. So, and, and I think Roy would agree as well. I mean, the legislature and the governor have far less power in Colorado today because of the various initiatives that are on the ballot that have been approved by the citizens. And, and it's not just the education initiative, which is it 23 or 27? I always get it. 23. 23, which requires additional money every year for K through 12 based on a couple of formula. Um, but it's also, I mean, Tabor, which, which I support and be glad we can talk if you choose to later, Dick. But it's, we've, through initiative, taken away the rights of representative government in so many areas. Having said that, I don't think the Joint Budget Committee has all that much power. I think strong governors, I think all three of us were strong governors. We, uh, we had huge power, and, and I'm not one who believes that Colorado's governor is weak. Um, I believe it's actually pretty strong as the three of us exhibited. Bill, you didn't have any kind that near the power that Dick Celeste just described, did you? Yes, we have the power to veto. We have the power in the budget to line item. I vetoed hundreds and was never overturned. You were never over. Roy was overturned one time. Um, when, what? What? what by, I, by Democrats. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> and they were right, incidentally. <laughs> but no, I. This is Dick, and I will will have this discussion in class. But but. Uh, I really believe that Colorado is a strong governor state in the fact that we have the line item veto on the budget. We actually, I mean, I know the JBC proposes, but we dispose. I appointed the attorney general, the secretary of state, the lieutenant governor, and the treasurer in my second term. We have that. I appointed 60% of the judges of Colorado were appointed by me after eight years. I mean, these are huge powers. But I take your do. point. but. But we don't begin to have the idea, the, the, the power right. that Dick Celeste had, what he, he proposed and then enforced it. Yeah, I agree. We have one of the one of the examples of this, and Roy, well, you may want to pick up on this, but you know the 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 office that prepares all of the 
estimates, revenue estimates for the state. It was an office that was controlled by the governor. The office that would play out the economic scenarios was staffed by people who answered to the governor. And so, whereas you had 14 appointments out of 53,000, I probably had 2,500 appointments out of 53,000. And I think that creates a different dynamic, at least it seems to me, but uh, maybe wrong. I want, I want to put another power relationship on the table. One we're talking about is governor and legislature. Uh, I want to talk about governor and interest groups uh. and money on both parties. And uh, there's a little deeper conversation. If you take any candidate for office in any state uh, in modern America, it takes a great deal of money to win the election. You, you know that. I don't have to explain that in terms of the, the media. And um, any candidate on either party going for public office has got to shape his advocacy so that he still has a base within his respective parties to get through the primary and in the general to get enough money to win. Now, in the political parties, the primary, and I uh, just identify it with the Republican right now, uh, in terms of the Tea Party movement, is so strident in terms of its primary races. You, you know the incumbent Republicans that are and senators that are being challenged. Uh, their campaign advocacy is being shaped by that. Same way on the Democratic side. Union, uh, teachers union have a lot to do with what you say about education when you're running for office. Now, I want to bring that to the table because um, we've done pretty well in America. But if we're going to continue to do well or to do better, we have got to tackle that issue of interest group influence into the choice of candidates and then the effect of winning elections. And uh, I, I just take any freshman senator who spends 60% of their time raising money for the next race. Nobody can tell me, regardless of party, that's good for America. Now, I, I just want to put that on the table. I want to add one last thing. We have got an archaic tax system, probably in most states in the country. It's historically arrived at, and nobody has got the guts in either party running for election to say, we've got to change that. And, and I just, without discussing the details of that, uh, and I'm not necessarily talking about raising taxes, I'm talking about how you allocate what you now have. And all you need to look at the historic way we build school buildings in Colorado, you know, and the property valuation differences is sick. And, and so I just want to lay those two problems out since we're <laughs> laying in the glory of days. I just want so I'm going to, I want to, I'm, there are some other substantive questions I have, but I want to ask a question that I think would be of interest to everyone here. And that is, share with us the, the, impact of public life on your families. Can you comment uh, on that, kids? Yeah. But, I, <coughs> you know, that, when I was out walking the state, uh, that um, I had young kids, seven and four, and a very sarcastic wife. <laughs> Kept you honest. <coughs> and I came home one night, and Heather, age four, said, Daddy, 
And Dottie said, look at the brains on that young lady. She meets a man once and remembers his name. <laughs> Second story, can I do? Sure. Is it about Dottie? <laughs> so my wonderful wife tried to, you know, it's tough to be the, Roy was talking about this earlier this evening, it's tough to be the kid of a governor. It yeah. really is. It's a heavy burden on these kids. So Dottie kept saying, Scott, age seven, Scott, you are Scott Lamb. You're not the governor's son. You're an individual in your own right. You are Scott Lamb. You're not the governor's son. Don't think of yourself as that way. So I'm out at the mall, and, and at, at Christmas time, and somebody stops introducing themselves to me and, and themselves to me, and we had a short conversation. He turns to Scott and said, and you must be the governor's son. And he said, that's not what my mother tells me. <laughs> Roy, I, 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 I got to bask in the, in the humor. Let me make a point of that. Uh, there's something really important with leadership, uh, uh, being able to communicate effectively, and humor is a very powerful way to communicate. And uh, when Dick tells a couple of stories like that, can you imagine he's beginning an evening with people? <coughs> it opens up the trust. It opens yeah. up the communication. I just set in admiration of that kind of humor. Uh, the, uh, about the effect on families, it can be a joyous experience in some ways because you see a lot of life you wouldn't otherwise see. But it is a real problem uh, for all of us parents to enable a child to be them, who they were born to be and not to be some pattern of expectation that you brought to them. And the problem of public office is uh, it lasts a long while, you know? Well, you're, you know, it, it, you're always living in that shadow. And therefore, those who are in public office, uh, the families, uh, I think, have got to uh, uh, pay a whole lot of attention to helping the, the, the kids know that uh, everybody else is, is, is totally equal <laughs> and, and, uh, and to be re revered. And uh, it, it can be an experience that can be enabling and ennobling, but it also can leave some scars. Bill, thoughts? You know, we, we, we have three wonderful kids, one of whom is here tonight. I won't identify him and embarrass him. <laughs> but uh, we, we told our children, um, that there can be, there's going to be a lot of good things from having a dad who's governor, and there's also going to be some real challenges, and that you're going to have to have to balance those two. And the good things are things like Stanley Cup playoffs and getting to go to, you know, when when there were celebrities in town, we got to meet them, and Air Force One, and some things that you know really are pretty neat. But the bad thing would be if you mess up, you're going to be on the front page of the paper. And that actually, from a family standpoint, was probably a good thing because it kept them from messing up more than otherwise they might have. But, uh, you know, it, it, uh, and two of our kids were in the newspaper on really minor things. And I know some of yours were as well. And it's, <laughs> it's, uh... <laughs> you didn't need to tell Oh, well, you know, I mean, we're brothers here tonight. Yeah. 
But anyway, there are some really good things, and Dick, I'd like your perspective, but, uh, and also some challenges. And occasionally teachers would hold them to higher standards or, or disagree with me through the youngster. And uh, occasionally, we, that was pretty rare, but, but mostly I think it, it turned out okay. Right, let me just point uh, punctuate <laughs> that because it, it, it is in the learning. Uh, I got a call uh, late one evening uh, from Vale, the jail in Vale, <laughs> and, and uh, I had a son who had been doing wheelies in the parking lot, you know, and he calls me up and he says, hey, Dad, I'm in jail. I said, tell me about it, and he told me what happened. And I said, well, you're going to stay there. You know, that was the first message, is that, and he says, I agree with that. And uh, so we were fine that night, but the next day, front page, yeah, front page, and TV. And after a week or two or three, we debriefed it. And uh, I said, uh, how do you feel about all that now? And he said, hey, you know, I screwed up. I didn't mind being held accountable, just like everybody else, but I didn't like that constant TV. I mean, it was replayed, replayed, replayed because, and that's the peril you put these kids into is that, my gosh, uh, the things I have done as a youngster, uh, if my. We don't my, need that tonight. Oh, uh, that's that's but, another panel, Roy. Dick, That'll be another panel. But Dick, we'll, answer, we'll get B's permission to do Dick, it. Dick, answer your own question. Well, I'll answer How my do, own question. Your story reminded me. I was running for lieutenant governor, and I, I, I wasn't well-known. Ohio is a big state, and I was doing a lot of traveling, so I was away from home quite a bit. And I probably was on my fifth day of a trip down in southern Ohio, and I called home, and my middle daughter, Noelle, answered the phone. She was probably six or seven at the time. And I said, uh, hi, Noelle, could I, could I speak to your mom? And I heard her turn around from the phone and say, hey mom, there's a man on the phone and it sounds like daddy, <laughs> right? And I'm thinking, okay, I've been away too long. This daughter went on, this is early in my career, I hadn't even been lieutenant governor at that point in time. Uh, she went on to college and she wrote her senior thesis on something called Life in the Fishbowl and she interviewed the children of 20 people who'd been governors and senators and things like this. And, and, and essentially what people said was that, that on the one hand that the, there was a positive experience because they were exposed to so many things they would not have been exposed to otherwise. But the, the downside was A, the, the absences, the preoccupation of dad in this case with, with responsibilities, and the constant sense that they were subject to a kind of public scrutiny that, that really they hadn't bargained for. This was not something they wanted. So when Noelle got to you know, get pulled up on stage and dance with Bruce Springsteen, she was really happy. She was the governor's daughter, right? Um, but there were other occasions when she wasn't quite so happy that she was the governor's daughter, like when the highway patrol would call and say, uh, we just wanted you to know she was picked up doing 72 in a 50-mile zone, and you should be aware of it. Um, but I think it is it is a it is a mixed blessing, and uh, and I think often it's a it is a consequence of getting into public service that isn't evident to us as parents until we are there in in an office that has very high visibility and, and exposure. Um, 
I'm, I'm curious. Uh, I have I developed very strong feelings about the federal government when I was governor, and they weren't all particularly positive. Um, but I'm curious because Colorado is a state that has major interactions with the federal government. How, how do you see, as governor, how did you deal with the federal government and its issues? And how did you kind of take on presence in Washington? What did you see as your role mediating between the state of Colorado and folks in Washington? You know, it, it, uh, the, the governor is the, is the face of the state and is the highest ranking official in the state and really represents the state. And so I'm sure all three of us spent a lot of time in, in D.C. testifying, lobbying on behalf of our states. We would work directly with the secretaries, the Secretary of Agriculture, the Secretary of the Treasury. Whatever the issue, the governor has the ability to pick up the phone and even have the president answer but certainly at the cabinet level, if a governor called a cabinet member, as we all did, we could make our view known. And it was my experience that sometimes they listened, sometimes they didn't. Didn't mean we were always right, but, but we had a strong viewpoint. And uh, we also worked with Congress. I mean, obviously, Colorado is a relatively small state in terms of the number of congressional representatives we have compared to Ohio. But we would use those legislators, particularly when we had powerful senators, as we did in the 70s and 80s and 90s. And that's not a reflection of today. It's just that Mike Bennett and Mark Udall are both freshmen, and, and the Senate is primarily a seniority-driven system. And so, you know, you're the, you're the face of the state, and you're working aggressively on behalf of it, trying to fight for what Colorado needs. And sometimes you're up opposed to what the federal government is doing. Dick was governor during the Sagebrush Rebellion, or was it you, Roy, who, when, when kind of there was this Western uh, yeah. revolution. Um, but it, uh, it's one of the major things that a governor does. You know, it, um, the, the, what, Terry Sanford, which is one of the great governors of my era, talked about picket fence federalism. And that's the fact that, like a picket fence, every level of government has uh, some jurisdiction in every problem of your life. And, you know, Richard Nixon came along and Pat talked about what he called new federalism. And I think he was absolutely right. We need a sorting out of this because it, it, it really is, it doesn't make any sense to have sort of this duplicative overlapping jurisdiction. And I, I got very frustrated in the fact, like in education, Roy, I'd be interested in your the education was 6% of our education budget. It was 39% of our paperwork. <coughs> it just doesn't make sense to, to not sort some of these functions out better than we've done. Roy? Well, uh, the, uh, let me go back to the word arrogance. Uh, uh, there's a lot of collective arrogance around Washington. And it's not all in the elected officials. It's the town. Uh, it's the influence and influencers. Now, but they all believe that government's got to work, and you'll see them outreach. They're doing that in education now quite effectively. They're going out to the states and saying, you've got to be a part of this team. But in many other areas of policy, uh, it's hard to be heard. I was chairman of the 50 governors, and uh, years ago we were trying to do something about Medicaid. Uh, shortfall, and uh, 
it was difficult because uh, <laughs> you're a governor, and there's a there's a club in Congress, and uh, there's seniority, and I've been here 18 years, and I got my own agenda. Uh, wh- wh- what do you what are you taking my time for? Now that's not everybody, but it's something that works itself out. Uh, let me finish by saying that. Um, I don't think the problem we have is the difference between the federal and the state government. The problem we got in America is the difference between people who believe that government can be an effective instrument of holding communities together and making them have a better future from those who are almost poisonous in the sense that anything with the word government in it is something that is bad to be avoided, <clears throat> if not evil. And that's growing, and I'm worried about it. Dick Lamb played an important role for me as I was becoming, actually before I took office as governor uh, in Ohio, uh, alerting me to a change in policy, federal policy as it related to um, job training programs. There used to be a program called CETA and it was being transitioned to something called the Job Training Partnership Act, JTPA. And in the course of this, there was an opportunity for the federal government to um, look critically at what each state had been doing. And he said, be alert to the fact that this could, could be a serious problem for you in Ohio, where you're going to have to pick up the responsibilities of, of your predecessors. And within two months after I took office, uh, the regional office of the Department of Labor in Chicago announced that they were going to, they, they wanted to recover $250 million from the state of Ohio for unaccounted for expenditures and job training programs. This is at a time when we had a half a billion dollar budget deficit and I was in the, in the unpleasant position of raising taxes and cutting spending at the same time uh, to try to deal with it. And we, we fortunately because uh, Dick had alerted me, we were prepared to resist this demand from the federal government. But you talk about arrogance. If you're a young governor, a new governor, and the federal government comes to you and says, you owe Uncle Sam $250 million, fork it over. It is not easy to say, I am not going to do that. Uh, I'll see you in court before I do that because the people of Ohio shouldn't be treated this way. So I, I sort of... I guess my experience started off on the wrong foot, I would say, uh, as compared to some others. Uh, it's an ongoing concern, and I think your point, Dick, which is really to the systematic issue, and that is how do we, how do we energize a federalism that is effective and efficient and convinces people that government can do things right if we, if we work at it together? That's very much a challenge. As the, as the token Republican up here, <laughs> I, I would no- just suggest that, that, that the challenge we face as governors is the fact that the federal government does move into so many areas and it preempts and, and takes the oxygen and, and tells us this is ours and this is how you will do it. And we see this all the time to where the purview of the states, the 50 states as laboratories, the places where you know, two or three states can make a mistake so that the other 47 states can figure it out. That's a great system. I always said as governor, I didn't really come up with anything new. I just wanted to be second. 
I would look at 50 states and I'd see some guy in, in, in Minnesota doing charter schools and say, well, that's a good idea. And we were, we were third in the country. Mm -hmm. and, and so I'm afraid that our friends in the federal government, and I'm seeing it as recently as a couple of weeks ago, are preempting <clears throat> the states telling us you will do it this way, you will do this on Medicaid. And so as the, as, as, you know, it's, it's, I love the federal system with having 50 states balancing power with our federal government. And it is a, a tenuous relationship that's always subject to debate. You know, I, I think in a way, Bill, that just the years that separate us here. I mean, Roy Romer and I were brought up in a time when um, the federal government was really an operator. It saved the country from depression. It saved the I mean, I, I'm a child of John F. Kennedy, and that right. is so, and that was such a shock of electricity to my generation. And as Roy says, there was an arrogance about it. I mean, I knew that, that most problems had a federal solution. And, and you were right and I was wrong. They don't. It's, you, you do have to have a, 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 a balance in terms of government. And my point, Roy, is, is, is that there is an imbalance right, right now. And, and one of the things that they can do is if we could sort out some of these functions of government and stop the duplication and overlapping jurisdiction, that, that there, there's got to be a way where you can assign roles of government better than we're doing it now. I'm, did you want one more? Uh, no, I want to I move to um, a different uh, point. Another point. Okay. Uh, it was, let me keep the transition going. We've been talking about what it was like during our time. Right. If we could, and we talked about the context in which we governed, Let's look at the context this nation is in right now and say, what does it say about future governors? I am worried because we are in a different context than any time in my lifetime. Uh, we're in a world that is becoming increasingly competitive, increasingly effective and proficient with economics, are becoming much more skilled educationally than we, and that is a fact that uh, I see the expectations of our populace not being met with the way history is unfolding. And I, I think that we need to have strong, dynamic, creative leadership at both the federal and the state government. And, and uh, the status quo, business as usual, take it as it come, isn't going to cut it. The world is out competing us. And all you need to do is to look at the, you know, the, the, the job market in the United States, the economic climate, and particularly our <coughs> debt. Our, particularly our debt. We're getting a load of debt that we can become a, 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 a South American nation or a third world nation pretty damn quick. Now the point is, let me bring back the governors. Yeah, I'm going to ask you for your point. I, 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 <laughs> I, uh, I think that uh, I want to see in both parties, governors and senators and people who are saying, I'm going to really lead, and I got a direction I'm going to go. I'm, I think just to say, hey, I'm going to manage it until the next guy comes along is not enough. This has been, I, I'm loving this conversation, and I could go on asking <coughs> questions. I have a couple more that I'd like to ask, but I want to give you and the audience a chance to uh, 
have at uh, these three distinguished governors. So please stand up, identify yourself, and state a question succinctly. I shall. My name is Hal Bidlack, and two years ago I was the congressional candidate here, and I consulted with three of the four gentlemen, sir. I confess I do not consult with you. I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> and I'm wondering what you think can be done in this climate where political candidates are criticized as not only being wrong, but because they're wrong, they're un-American. How do we get back to being able to say, I respect my opponent, I just disagree? But what can actually be done? You know, it, it's really up to the electorate. You know, a lot of times we, we pretend like it's, it's our fault, and sometimes it is. The electorate has to punish the candidate that does that sort of thing. And we see the negative ads on television, and it's really one of the reasons why, why some of us get tired of, of the campaign process, because you put yourself up, you're basically a pretty good guy or gal, lady, you're ready to serve, you're ready to lead, and what do they do? They tear you down, down for months. There's never a positive, it's only a negative. Why, why, why is that done? Because it works. Because you vote based on those negative ads. And so when Dick and I teach classes, I've made this point to our students. Until the electorate says not only no, but hell no, we're not going to accept that it's going to continue to happen because politics and elections are markets and you market to what works and so as long as we reward that which works which in this case is negative it's going to continue to happen so we really as Americans have to take responsibility show a little bit more faith in in terms of the process do a little more reading don't watch the 30-second ads and figure that they're telling the truth and then vote for the candidate that stands up and says what you believe in without constantly attacking and trying to tear down his or her opponent. I think you have to... <clears throat> I, I think you have to do something about reapportionment. Because uh, reapportionment, when they safe, have safe districts and the most conservative Republican takes out the moderate and the most liberal Democrat takes out the moderate, and it just simply makes for this increased partisanship. So it's not the total solution, but I think it's one part of it's important. I think that's a good point. I'm, but can, can we turn the house lights up a little bit? I know that we're trying to film this, but it'd be nice and we can, I can see who's got their hand raised. Yes, question over God, there. There's a lot of people here. out there. Yeah. <laughs> Did you know? We thought we were just talking I, to ourselves. I would have been nervous. <laughs> I'll repeat the question. Um, 10 million people are coming here in some amount of time. There's a mic. Oh. Even better. You said 10 million people are coming here soon. Um, <clears throat> what are we going to do for water? I, I don't think we have enough water for all these people. <laughs> and I don't have any agenda. I'm just concerned. Dick wrote a book on the coming water shortage in the mid-1980s. So that's a way for me to hand it over to you. Right. This is how. Yeah, but, you know, I do think there's a new issue. I mean, politics is like uh, surfing. You look where the waves are coming from. And I think one of the future issues is sustainability. And we have to sort of rethink a lot of these things, including, like, would it be really in America's interest to double the size of America or Colorado's interest? Why, why do we want to double the size of Colorado and double the size of America? I, th I think those kind of issues 
you know, need debate. Do we, we need a sort of a population policy? What are our goals in, in terms of you know, how many people can live satisfied lives in Colorado or in the United States? I'm, unless somebody else wants to pipe up, I'm going to keep moving because we had a lot of questions yet. Hand John a mic so he can. Oh, what, what advice would you give the two candidates running for governor, what they should be doing now, so that if one of them is elected, which is a likely poss possibility, <laughs> that what, so that they could do a really good job in the transition period? Yeah. Advice can, for can I take a crack at right? that? Um, I, I was pretty active in education, you know, and trying to raise our performance and standards. But what I should have done and did not do was be really radical. I should have, 18 years ago, whenever I started, said to America, you have got to be as good as the top eight, six or eight nations in the world. That's your standard. We <coughs> were undershooting. And we left too much. There are 15,000 school districts in this country. And, and uh, the... Education is so key to our, to our skills, to our economy, to our ability to hold our communities together. We are still undershooting there. And I feel badly that I did not understand that better, even though I was working very hard at it. I, I think all of us who have served have got to say, hey, what did you do well and what did you not do well enough? I didn't do that one well enough. Other thoughts for me, Derby? Okay, over here, there's a question, yeah. I have a question for uh, Governor Lamb. Uh, in the 1976 Olympics, as, as we were talking about earlier, uh, you were not the fourth. I was fourth, and I was reading Sports Illustrated and reading on the bandwagon until I heard you talk about these mom and pop stores that were going to be all over the place and that we didn't have a real master plan like Conifer uh, for Nordic skiing, don't have any snow and that stuff. But what about what about a future bid for the Olympics? Are we better equipped? Um, I think we are better equipped, and I think that the um, that uh, the, the television revenues now are of a magnitude that were so different than when we were looking at the 1976 <coughs> Olympics. I th am convinced that the 1976 Olympics were an economic disaster that was just waiting to happen. And I think Colorado did the right thing, though some people say rightly, what, you know, why didn't you get, get in there and be the Peter Uberoth of, Peter Uberoth made the first balance on It's a fair point. It's a fair point. But I do not want to, to say that there's not possibility of a Colorado bid that would make sense, but I'm very skeptical. And I, uh, let me just jump in here. It's a discussion I had with, with a, a prominent reporter just a couple of weeks ago. I don't think Colorado is ever going to get a successful bid. And the reason is the following. Because we have the power of initiative here, the same initiative that in 1976, um, then State Representative Dick Lamb organized the signatures, went on the ballot, defeated it. If you're on the Olympic Committee and you have 10 applicants, you're trying to drop it down to three and then to a final, the question they're going to ask Colorado is, could the same thing happen today 
that happened in 1976. Colorado's going to have to honestly answer, well, yes. We don't think it's likely. The polling shows we're ahead 55-40. But as long as there is the initiative, and, and I, actually, I support the initiative, no Olympic committee is going to give it to Colorado when none of the other cities have a one in three chance of putting it on the ballot and rejecting it because the, the time frame is such that you need every year now. And so I don't think is, and I'm in favor of, you know, I, I think I would be in favor of having the Olympics here, but I don't think we should waste much time on it because that reality is gonna keep that committee from ever giving it to Colorado. There's a question over here, yes. Hi, I'm from Ohio originally, so Good. you're my lieutenant governor. Thank you. And then all of you were my governor subsequently, and well. I worked for Steve Shuck, and he was the gubernatorial candidate. There you go. So I kind of got this governor thing in my life. Oh, I'm really, really pleased. Thank you so much for putting this together. And thank you, Leslie Woodall, wherever you are, for giving me a ticket. Um, but I'm leaving Colorado in a couple weeks to move to Georgia because my husband's job is being relocated. We have to leave because we need his health care. What are we going to do about health care? Can we take this on the state level? And, and I mean, we're forced to leave. So I'm going to go work at somebody else's campaign in Georgia, but what about health care? Mm -hmm. Gentlemen, a small hey, question that's been Whoa. debated over the last uh, year and a half. Any, any quick answers? There's, the ancient Greeks used to say, to know all to ask is to know half. And it's really true. I mean, keep asking that question. We're working our way through this. Um, it's... it's that, that there is at the end of this road, I think, a fair and just healthcare system. So, you know, keep the pressure on. But the tragedy is what you're saying. You have to move because of healthcare. I mean, there's so many individual tragedies out here in American healthcare. It's too big a question almost. Yeah. I don't know where to get my arms around it. Yes, up in the up, upper deck. a governor that where Tabor passed and a governor where, who lived under Tabor um, and you know we can all agree or disagree but I don't think Tabor is going to go away so what would you say are the positive aspects and what do you think now that it's been almost 20 years later what we need to fix can I, can I take that and compliment Bill Owens because you know Bill really stood up on this Tabor issue against his um, you know his political party yeah, and he deserves it. I think it was actually an absolute act of uh, profile and courage because, um, frankly, given the Republican attitude at the time and the tax, uh, sort of the Douglas Bruce tax mentality at the time, but B Bill saw the need to give some elbow room to the Tabor Amendment, and, and he did it, and I think that's a remarkable thing. So I think Tabor overall is a bad idea, but... I think we have to live with it, as you say, and I think that uh, we, we've got to do something else again now in the immediate future. Bill? Dick, thank you very much for those kind comments, and I, I think it's the same thing that any of us would have done. I mean, when you elect a governor, you're expecting a, a lady or a gentleman to, do what's, to try to do what's right. Um, political cost, I mean, this compared to what men and women are facing in Iraq and Afghanistan, these are simple risks to take, and so you do try to put it in, in comparison. I'm a supporter of Tabor, and, and, let me, and I'll just take 20 seconds to tell you why. It isn't going to have an impact on Colorado's budget for the next 10 years. 
It is not going to have an impact on Colorado's budget for the next 10 years because we fixed the ratchet effect, which would have crippled us coming out of this recession. Tabor says that government can grow only by as much as population and inflation. If it grows by more than that, it has to go into capital funding and has to go into other areas. And eventually, above that, it has to go in back to the taxpayers. Second component of Tabor is it says you have to vote on tax increases. The reason why it won't have an impact for the next 10 years is our budget drops so much, and because of what us inside, we insiders would call the ratchet effect, we're now allowed to catch that back up before Tabor ever has an impact. And it isn't going to have an impact for a decade because of the revenues that we need. Tabor is only a, a, a limit on the top, and we're not going to reach that top in the next decade. So if you're against voting for tax increases, then you should be against Tabor, and good people are against those votes. I'm in favor of voting on tax increases. I think it leads to more involvement. And we pass most tax increases in this state, incidentally. Most of the taxes we put on the ballot actually pass. So I think it's pretty innocuous today, given, given that quick background, though I understand in the older days, before we fix this ratchet effect, it could cripple a state as you came out of a recession. That's what we fix with Ref C. We fix that to allow it to adjust back to where it would have been, and second, to give us a four and a half year timeout while it adjusted. But Roy? Uh, no, that's enough. Oh, I think okay. I, I understand that. Okay. You had a question here? I'm going to get around. Sure. My name is Jeff Nadell. I'm a sophomore here at CC and as professor from the leadership governance class right now. And one thing that you all mentioned was that there's a really big, needs to be a really big push in governing in order to increase the faith that the populace has in government's ability to be able to take care of them for the long term. But we were looking at statistics today in class that showed that over the past 40 years there's been a dramatic shift in skepticism and there's no longer strong belief in any party that the government, no matter who's in power, is going to be able to take care of the populace. So in terms of being a governor, how exactly did you rectify that situation? How do you restore faith in government? Um, you know, how do you, the question was that, that there's been a steady erosion of confidence on the part of people that government can actually benefit them, and a growing skepticism about government. And the question was how, how as a governor, could you try to rectify that? Well, I think there needs to be several actions. For those who are in office, who govern, they have got to take real pain to explain in human family terms what these issues are and to bring people along. Uh, when I was governor, I created what was called Dome on the Range. I took the whole government out every, I don't know how, 30 days or whatever, and we, we worked in the town that day. But I mean, you, you really need to work at uh, being open. And what I mean, it doesn't mean going into town and telling people how they ought to think. It means going in and listening hard and being honest and saying, you know, I don't know how to solve that problem. Most of us are going to lie away some way, but that's one step. But the other step is, is the body politic, the, the public. Uh, you've got to rise up and, and demand something better than Rush Limbaugh on KOA. I mean, seriously. You know, the airways are free, but there are certain marketing that 
you know, these stations have gone for. And uh, I mean, there is, I really believe in different points of view. I firmly believe in the strength of two political parties. We have best government when it's really nip and tuck. But there's a, a poisonous nature of the debate we hear from the radicals on both sides. It says you can't trust the system, you can't trust the people who are in the system, you can't believe it. And I think all of you have got to find, you can't just sit back and say, that's not my problem. I think you've got to organize. You haven't heard that one before. And, and, and I mean, people can be brainwashed. They really can be brainwashed. You know, the most recent quote uh, I, I heard, and I'm not trying to be partisan, it's just the way I hear the news, is Sarah Palin saying, well, Fidel Castro agrees with uh, Obama on health care. Now, 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 now think about it. You, you ought not, as a public, allow that to happen. You ought to be marching in the streets. You ought to be, you ought to be calling up KOA and say, I'm keeping a list of the people who advertise on your damn station, and I've got to tell you, I'm going to communicate with every one of them. You lost my purchasing power. Yeah, I want, I want to you know can't I... sit here and let the world do this to you. You've got to use what power you've got. Purchasing power okay. is a part of it. So. I, I I'm gonna, sorry, Dick. That's you. all right. I was going to ask you how you really feel, Roy, but I guess I'll wait. I, I, okay, let me, we've got a lot of folks with hands up. I'm going to go to Angela, and then I'm going up in the corner there because I haven't gone to the corner, and then I'm going to come back here and over there. So, Angela. So, if I can bring the topic of conversation back to education, uh, the JBC is looking at... $7.1 billion in the general fund, and schools are part of that. And the largest cut right now that uh, the JPC is looking at is $260 million from K-12 through education in the state of Colorado, and that's a 6% decrease. And Governor Romer, you were talking about how American students are now competing with global students. So what advice would you all give to Governor Ritter and the state of Colorado really on public education? on public education, especially how, since we are falling behind. You know, I'll, I'll, uh, all three of us will want to talk on this, but I'll first of all make a couple of points. I don't see much correlation between the dollars we put in above a certain point in the output. I know there will be some people here who really get angry at that statement, but because we're chill tonight, we're all getting along, <laughs> don't boo. There's just, I mean, if, if there were, I mean, Colorado's K-12 through budget has been going up inexorably. Even as the rest of the budget goes down because of Amendment 23 Three. or 27? 23. It's been going up. It's been going up. We've been cutting everything else. K-12 through continues to get more. And what are the results? Are you seeing greater and really improved results every year? You can go back 5 years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and you can see more money put in on a per-student inflation-adjusted basis almost each and every year. That's not to say that, that we're not doing great things in our public schools, but I would just suggest that a 6% cut isn't going to, I mean, I've, I, I'm, on, I'm in businesses where we've cut 40% in the last year in, in two years. That's tough cuts. Guys, you, you may agree or disagree, and right, you've been specifically, in I'm not into the budget of Colorado, so I can't tell you how they ought to use an alternate approach. I'm just not into the detail of it. But 
I would say every state nation is having some really difficult times. Uh, we need to look at it, not at a one-year, but at a three- to five-year basis. We need to look at what real savings that we can make. Uh, I think that we ought to look at what other forms of government we can cut back in order to save education expenditures. For example, I think you could let some people... I'm getting in real trouble politically tonight. <laughs> but I, you can let some people out of prison for minor crimes and use that saving and, and, and get us over this hump. There are a number of things you can do. Uh, there's one thing that's happening in my old school district today, and, and that's uh, shortening the school year a, a week. Uh, folks, uh, that's, that's not a good one. Uh, that, that, these kids are not spending enough time on tasks now, and we've got to find a different way of saving the budget than closing the school for a week. Dick, any thoughts? Well, Angela, having had dinner with you, I, would, I, I keep thinking about um, Edison, not Edison, Emerson said, education isn't filling a bucket, it's lighting a fire. And I, you know, my, my answer to education is to clone your parents. Um, <laughs> I mean, how... What combination of things, you know, lights fires in people like you? It's so impressive when you see that it's out operating out there. But it's hard to do, and it isn't a factor only of money. Okay, up in the corner. I think we would all agree that the Colorado Constitution is a mess. I mean, it's just ungodly. And I dare say no one here has probably read it from, from, from start to finish. When are all the legislators and the governors, the past, the present, going to come out and say we need a new constitution from start to finish and make it a simple thing? Any thoughts? Um, I, yeah, I've looked at the whole history of constitutional conventions, and I, you know, intellectually I agree with what you say, but it's not a happy story. I mean, you know, the, a lot of other states have tried. Did Ohio? Did, they get me, run away. We've tried to, uh, this. And the one that got through is Michigan. But I think that uh, the, the, the whole history of state constitutional conventions is not a happy one. Yes, right down here. I'm Bernie Herford from the Colorado Springs City Council. And I'd like to come back to the Tabor question. While Referendum C fixed the ratchet down effect at the state level, the local governments are still subject to ratchet down. And Colorado Springs, in fact, has its own version of Tabor, which doubles <clears throat> uh, that problem. So uh, we keep getting unfunded mandates from state and federal governments. Uh, as state leaders and governors, what do you think your responsibility is to protect the local governments from unfunded mandates and perhaps work for a statewide solution to Tabor that would help with the ratchet down effect uh, for local governments? Any thoughts up front? Well, many, many cities have, have had, you know, under Tabor, you can have votes as to whether you want to stay within Tabor or not. Oh, I understand that. <laughs> and, and, and I opposed Doug in a couple of legislative races successfully and, uh, and uh, lived to tell about it. Um, <laughs> Um, but, but Bernie, and Bernie's been a good friend of mine for years, Colorado Springs has chosen to stay within Tabor and its most restrictive guidelines, and that's your local choice. Um, and, and yes, there are state mandates. I don't know which one specifically may have been relatively new, um, but uh, you know, it, it, uh, you'd have to tell me what it is the state's doing to you recently that you object to. But basically, Colorado Springs is, is having the right to vote, 
and it's voting consistently to stay within the most restrictive components of Tabor, and then you need to live with those consequences as a local government. Any other comments here? Bill Hockman. I'd like to talk, ask you a question about federalism. Uh, you know, when you look at the problems that we confront, they're national problems. Health is a national problem. Uh, financial institutions are a national problem. Climate is a national problem. Uh, the general economy of the nation is a national problem. Our relationship to the world is a national problem. And it's very hard to see how the states aren't losing their relevance in terms of this kind of development, which is only <coughs> going to continue and develop further in terms of uh, the future. And I wonder why it's possible to have a diversity of state approaches to things which are national problems. I don't want to suggest that you guys are irrelevant, but <laughs> it, 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 we it certainly are now. <laughs> It may be that all four of you are losing, uh, in the positions you had, uh, the ability to deal with things which are far beyond the boundaries of any state and even beyond the boundaries of the nation. Thoughts on that, Dick Lamb? Well, you, you, you know, that might be right, Bill. And it, 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 in fact, it's an important point. It seems to me that states are a wonderful administrative unit close enough from the un, sort of distant uncaring of the federal government and, and far enough away from the local parochialism. So I, I do think that the states is an interesting uh, administrative unit of government. But, but maybe you're right. I mean, the, the, the issue that I raised is do you really need three, issue, three jurisdictions all having their own rules and regulations about a particular problem? Roy? I hear the question, and I understand uh, there will be many policies, uh, energy and others, that are going to be increasingly national. But I think we've got to work out that partnership between the feds and the, and the states in new and creative ways. Now, education is one illustration that is working quite well. If you look what's happened in the last week, uh, this race to the top, federal uh, policy set up that momentum. Uh, they said two states made it, 48 did not. It was a tremendous incentive on in the second round for the states then to get together. Now that's to get, to get a better policy. I think that's creative, it's slow and laborious, but it's the only way within our traditions I think we can handle national standards and nationals, uh, I mean, uh, not national, but countrywide standards and assessments. Uh, but the other thing on, on uh, you, you just simply got to get a federal government uh, that is more is, is smarter in, in terms of using these jurisdictions of states to help form policy and administer policy. Bill, anything to add? Just really briefly, I just love the concept of, of using states as laboratories. If you federalize everything and you make one mistake, you've made a really big national mistake. If you have 50 states and two or three of them try this and two or three try... Eventually, it, it actually does become federal. I can talk about a lot of examples that started out at the state level. Federal government saw it worked and then did it federally. I love this, this system we have of 50 states, still one country. Thank God for John Kennedy and, 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 and the civil rights movement not letting states make their own law. 
But, but these states really do provide a, a huge competitive advantage, I believe, for the United States. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step in here. I have a, a question on behalf of our students here. You all have been very successful practitioners in the political arena uh, and successful in other ways as well. What single piece of advice would you give to our young people about whether they should think about a life in the political arena, public service, uh, and if so, how they should prepare themselves? Um, do it. I mean, I, it, it could, <laughs> it's so important to get, I think, that the next generation of public policy makers, these problems aren't going to get any better. They're going to get... I mean, they're going, to get, they're going to get worse until they get better, and we're going to need talented people in there. What's the secret? You know, I, I, I don't know. It, to me, it's to fight for what you believe in, and, and, and that's the best thing that I think you can do. Right. The best single piece of advice I can give to a young person is this. Uh, approach life knowing that your view of the truth is always partial. If you do that, then everybody you meet who has an opposing point of view, and you know yours is partial, you're at least open to the possibility that there is a piece of truth there that you don't have and you need to acquire. As I look in history, the most evil I know are the people who've said, our view of the truth is total. You know, the Crusades, the Inquisition, the Third Right. Uh, but I think particularly in our dealing with the conflicts such as the Muslim world, uh, we need to approach that uh, firmly uh, with our view of the truth, but proceed that our view may not be total, it's only partial, and we've got to remain open to those who oppose us. Bill? And I guess, I guess my, uh, my advice would be that, that just to think about the unique perspective of what it means to be able to participate in this debate and make your own decisions. If you look at everybody who's lived in, in, in human history, what percentage of them actually got to govern themselves? One-tenth of one percent? Perhaps in the entire history of the world? We're so unique. And so, yes, you should be involved. As a citizen, you have a duty, a responsibility. It, 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 this, is, this is such an opportunity to, to run your own lives. And it doesn't mean you have to run for office. It just means be active. Write a letter to the editor. Help a candidate. Um, be, a, be a participant. And then finally, to, to mirror and echo what, what my two friends and colleagues have said, be knowledgeable. Don't just listen to MSNBC or Progress Radio or KOA. <laughs> Listen to all sides because there's a, there's a plethora of viewpoints out there. And then make your own judgment because, uh, you know, we are. Roy is right. It has, begot, it has gotten so mean-spirited. Just step back a little bit. Realize the other side has a legitimate viewpoint. They may be right sometimes. And... Uh, but be active. Go into public service, as Dick said. It's a wonderful profession. Then there's still life afterwards to go out into the private sector. Would you uh, join me in saying thank you to these three gentlemen for a very special Thanks. evening? Thank you very much. This is fun.
Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Great job. Thank you very much. Hey.